1: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallets, Smart Money Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hi, I'm Manisha Takor, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. <laughs>
1: I have a ritual that I practice at my most important times on my biggest days when the challenges feel too great and the consequences are dire when I'm about to walk into a do or die situation. I sit alone in a room and reflect on all that I've already accomplished. I connect to all the goodness and rightness in my life. And then I repeat my mantra, a mantra my mom taught me when I was a little boy. You are already enough, regardless of the outcome of what happens today you are already enough this is not a calm mantra it's not peaceful it's not meditative it's a fierce war cry waged against the brutal and bloody battle against a cult the cult of never enough a cult so pervasive that it has overtaken not only our individual psyches but also our culture advertising social media and keeping up with the joneses it brainwashes us to confuse fiscal wealth with enoughness and then leaves us wondering why we continually feel empty. Manisha Takur is the founder of Money Zen, a boutique financial well-being consultancy and content hub, a woman's financial literacy advocate, educator, and keynote speaker. She's the author of Money Zen, The Secret to Finding you Enough. Manisha Takur, welcome to Earn and Invest. Describe the moment you realized that you had joined a cult, the cult of never enough.
0: So as I was reflecting on how in the book I wanted to explain this aha moment, it came to me so vividly. I had um, graduated from business school three years earlier, and I was gung-ho type A. I'd been blessed to have uh, gotten into Harvard Business School even 30 years later, I am I somehow am like, how do they take me? I don't feel like I'm enough. <laughs> but I was on an airplane and I was falling apart. I was literally just bawling. I had papers strewn all over the place. I was sitting in my favorite seat, 1A, which, yeah, it's nice to be in, in the front of the plane, but this is how sick my mind was. I liked that seat because it meant I could be the very first person to get off my off the plane and out and into a cabin, onto my meeting, and not get hung up by anybody in the back. But so here I am in the front seat, and I'm like losing my my marbles. And this exceptionally elegant woman, who I'd seen at industry events but didn't know personally, came by and bent down next to my seat and opened up this pill case and said, "Here, take these. Just a have to start." And I was so frantic. I, I didn't even ask what it was she was giving me. Thank God it was not Oxycontin it, or <laughs> crystal meth. It was Valium. Not that anybody should be taking pills that I'm asking what they're for without a doctor's recommendation. But that really, when I reflect back on that, that's when I realized I was willing to take pills from a stranger on a plane if, if with the promise it was going to help me get through my next set of meetings because I was not going to let anything get me through my next set of meetings, because that would make me earn more money. And then I would be somehow whole and seen and felt by the world.
1: So this was kind of the beginning of an odyssey, an odyssey that led to two life-threatening illnesses, a divorce, and all sorts of things that came from your workaholism. But let's try to go back to the beginning. That episode was right after business school. But where did this all come from? Talk to us about what money behaviors your parents modeled. Because obviously you grew up in their household. Were they like this? No,
0: and that's what's so interesting is my parents are complete opposites from me when it comes to this stuff. I mean, my parents view money as a tool, as a means to an end, but it's just it's just a tool, just like toilet paper is a tool you use it and you throw it away. And you know, then it's gone and you're glad you had it when you did it. And so I I didn't get these from them. And in fact, I got very positive money messages from my parents. My mom has always said to me that money gives women voices and choices. And my dad, even though he's Indian and oftentimes in India, girls aren't brought up this way. My dad brought me up just like my brother taught me all about compound interest at an early age. And so my money story actually was very positive from a upbringing standpoint. My descent into the madness stemmed from something else.
1: Yeah, let's talk about what that something else is. And in fact, I'm going to quote you here. You say, as I look back today, it is crystal clear that the reason I became so deeply sucked into my work was that I was desperately trying to fill a pit of shame and self-doubt that was at the core of my existence. Where did all this shame come from?
0: It's interesting. I call it small T trauma. There was a period between fourth and sixth grade where I was the odd girl out. I was chubby. I had Coke bottle glasses. I'm of half Indian heritage. So I had hair in places that most girls don't want to have hair, like on your upper lip. And and kids would call me cow butt and thunder thighs and mustache mouth. And I just, it's going to be mean. And that was 30, 40 years ago, 45 years ago. <laughs> now they're really mean. But I felt so rejected by my peers. And the only place I felt outside of home seen was by my teachers. So I threw myself into my academics. And then, you know, the better grades I got, the more praise I'd get from teachers. And that helped make me feel like at least somebody wanted me. And then as you keep going on in life, that behavior, which served me during those couple of tough years, just seemed to take on a life. Of its own. And evolutionary biologists will often call that a, a runaway trait. And for years, I felt really embarrassed when I I, I, I I, knew in part of my head that I was running away from the bullies in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. But I'm thinking, like, I'm in my 30s, I'm in my 40s, now I'm in my 50s. Like, how long is this race to last? You know, and it seems silly that something as small is, as that. Could have such a long-lasting impact. But when I look back, that's what I think it was.
1: We're going to talk in a little bit about how we end up in the cult of never enough. But you just mentioned your own what you call small T trauma. We're talking about you here, but your research kind of showed that th- this is not uncommon per se, right? Like people carry those small T traumas of childhood with them. It's not just something you yourself experienced.
0: No. And I was shocked. It's one of the reasons why this is probably the fav- one of my favorite parts of the puzzle to talk about with people is that it's the rare successful person, and I, let me put successful in air quotes because um, we can talk about what that means, that has not experienced something. And, and talking to executive coaches, for example, uh, C-suite, Very high-level executive coaches. I'd ask them, you know, what percentage of your client base is fueled by people who experience some type of small T trauma when they were under the age of eighteen, say, and the answers range from seventy-five percent of my client base to one hundred percent.
1: So it's there, and it's really a huge part of our population. We're going to get into again this whole idea of the cult of never enough. And why and the how of it. But before we do, what are some of the cardinal signs, right? So how do you know if you're part of this cult?
0: I have kind of summarized it as follows. If you've ever felt that no matter how much you earn, how many accomplishments you achieve, how much praise you receive, it's it's never enough. because Somewhere inside you, you feel like you're never enough. Or on the flip side, you feel like you've gotten sucked into this societal vortex where your brain immediately responds to anything that ails you with, oh, the answer to that is more, work more, have more, do more, be more. If any of that resonates, you've likely fallen into the cult of, of never enough.
1: You use the term or the saying, trying to feed the hungry ghost. Where did that come from and what does it mean?
0: Yeah. So the hungry ghost is a beautiful Buddhist concept and kind of in in a very uh, butchered lay terms, I'll explain it as this notion that amongst us walk millions of hungry ghosts, which are um, these ghosts with very distended bellies because they're 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 starving, but their throats are as thin as needles. So no matter how much food they get, they can't swallow enough to ever feel satiated. And that is, I think, a perfect metaphor for, well, the, the concept came around because it was a perfect metaphor for humanity, and that was thousands of years ago. But I think for today, it is particularly an apt comparison.
1: We're really here talking about enoughness and it hits me that we can talk about this in the realm of money, but it's so much more than money, right? It's not just money. It's how we feel about ourselves. It's how we feel we fit into society, et cetera. But let's talk about the money issue for a moment. You talk about the difference between money problems and money worries. Why is it important to make that distinction?
0: I define money problems as situations that can be solved with fact-based solutions. My credit score is in the wrapper. How do I improve it? I'm drowning in student loan debt. How do I get out? I just got this new job and there are 30 investment options on this 401k or 403b list. How do I pick? factual answers not not easy not necessarily fun for everyone to deal with but those are problems money worries have emotional and psychological solutions for instance one of the most common ones women tell me and I I feel it too is i'm afraid i'm going to end up old poor alone and quite literally under the bridge I mean, there's a wide range of money worries, but the point about that the term money worry as distinguished from money problem is that the answer to it is n- not in the nuts and bolts of personal finance basics. And for so long, I looked for the answers in the nuts and bolts of the personal finance side of the equation, and that's not where it is.
1: Yeah, I love that. You know, I I find myself saying this, and I hear a lot of people in personal finance say this a lot, that money solves money problems. And I I feel like it's connected to the same idea that it it doesn't solve your sense of not being enough. It doesn't solve your worries about being loved or cared for. Okay, it solves your debt and it solves the need to put money on the to put food on the table, etc. I feel like the end stage or maybe the product of this cult of never enough is being a workaholic. And you identify in the book as a workaholic. What's the difference between a workaholic and someone who just really loves their job? Because I know that we in American culture, we say you're supposed to love your job. Like you're supposed to get excited about it. You're supposed to do what you're passionate about. But then there's kind of like the negative side. How do we differentiate between those two?
0: So it turns out there's such a need to differentiate between those two. It's actually become an academic discipline. Yes, there are professors who have PhDs specialized on studying workaholism. And the difference, they tell me, is there's work positive work engagement which is when you love what you do you're very present when you do it but very importantly when you are not doing it you're not present in it you are present in wherever you are and the flip side is workaholism which is when you're thinking about work all of the time now ironically many people with positive work engagement will work many more hours than quote the workaholic because the workaholic is thinking about it 24-7, not necessarily doing it. And the person with positive work engagement oftentimes is just very efficient and focused and full of joy and flow and bliss while they're working. And so that's really the difference. And you disconnect psychologically from your work when you are not working.
1: And ironically... The workaholic is not necessarily better at their job, are they?
0: No. I mean, and (laughs) there's something I've long thought was fascinating. When when I er, first started my career in finance, I was what's called a buy-side equity analyst, which means I analyzed publicly traded corporations to try and decide whether or not to recommend them to go into investment portfolios. So- I met with a lot of investment relations teams. And ultimately, as I grew in my career, I got to meet with a lot of CEOs of very large corporations. And I would always ask them, how much real work do you think you get done in a day? I don't know why I wanted to know that. I just did. It was just kind of, I guess, because I was working all the time. I wanted to figure out like how much real work does anybody get done? And uniformly, uniformly, The answer was always somewhere between four and, if I'm really lucky, five hours of real work in a day. Even if my workday spans 14 hours, it's four to five hours. And so that's why if you come in with a fresh head during those four to five hours of, of real work and you're focused, which you don't pretty much ever do if you're a workaholic because your brain is constantly It's just been whirling and whirling and whirling. So no, workaholics, we are horrifically inefficient.
1: You know, it reminds me of this conversation of the busy badge, right? This idea that we might be working four or five hours of efficient work, but we are constantly saying how busy we are. Another quote from your book, the power of a busy badge is that it can cover up all sorts of bumps, bruises, and unhealed wounds. And I suspect that many other workaholics got their badges as adolescents, just like me. Are we using the busyness as an excuse? Like, why why in our culture is busyness lauded as such a great quality? It stems,
0: in my opinion, from something that the uh, writer for The Atlantic, Derek Thompson calls worshiping at the altar of workism in the sense that we started off with careers being jobs and then and then they became or work started off being a job then it became a career then they became callings and it's that we so tightly identify in this society who we are as a human with what we do and so you are what you do you are a human doing you're not a human being anymore and so that's where i feel like the distortion just really has gotten amped up because n- now what we do particularly with social media like we we all need to like be able to put a label on ourselves we don't put under our Twitter handle. I'm somebody who likes to watch 10 hours of Law & Order on the weekend with three pints of Jenny's salted caramel ice cream. Then um, and, and so that's how I think about it.
1: These are highly maladaptive behaviors, right? The busy badge, the workaholism. In the quote I just gave you, we just talked kind of about the busy badge part. But then you say it can cover up all sorts of bumps, bruises, and unhealed wounds. I feel like a lot of this maladaptive behavior comes from very deep internal feelings. What we're really talking about is shame. Oh, yes. And and you talked about shame, kind of the part from the childhood. But what's driving this shame as adults? Is it all just going back to our childhood? Or are we creating a new sense of shame as we move through our careers? It's
0: a really interesting question. And I... I think it varies from person to person, but I interviewed countless individuals. And so this is not an N of one comment, but it's not a double blind, randomized, controlled study either. I really think those early chips away at our sense of self-worth have so much more of a long lasting effect than we give homage to in modern society and it's like a it's like a wound that never got cleaned out and it's trying to heal but because it never got appropriately cleaned out the very first time around you constantly now are needing to put other types of bandages and things to try and make it heal. So you may not consciously realize, oh, there was dirt in my wound before I put the band-aid on and skin grew back around it. But that's metaphorically what I feel is, is happening. And so oftentimes what you think you are putting the badge over is not what you're really putting the badge over. So, for instance, for me, I would constantly miss weddings I would miss I'd miss funerals i'd I'd miss uh baby showers I'd miss
1: all it, kinds of events I wanted to mention there was an episode in the book where you describe where your husband at the time had a serious injury and ended up in the hospital. And you decided to stay where you were and finish work as opposed to going and seeing him in the hospital.
0: Oh, yeah. I was a very important person at that time. (laughs) I was staying in San Francisco at the Four Seasons doing a series of deeply meaningful meetings. And so I left him in a 16-bed hospital in um, the mountains in Northern California Recovering from emergency surgery to save his leg after a horrible motorcycle accident. And I mean, I have no idea what those meetings were for or who they were with. And, you know, in retrospect, but I prioritized that over being with him. and I I used that both in my own marriage, I think, as a a shield, but more frequently, even just on a day to day basis, being busy. Would keep me from doing going, having a reason to go to social events where I may feel awkward, I may be rejected again, I I may just not feel comfortable because I'm very introverted. And so the badge will, like the socially acceptable way to keep me, to keep anything at bay, and people would applaud you for us, and especially if you're busy with work. It's a very easy quote excuse to escape from any kind of situation that might make you feel uncomfortable, whether that's consciously or subconsciously.
1: We are talking to Manish Atakur. She is the founder of Money Zen, a boutique financial well-being consultancy and content hub, and we are discussing the cult of Never Enough, we're going to take a short break on Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification... That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. We are back with Manisha Takur, and she is the author of Money Zen: The Secret to Finding Your Enough. And we are talking about the cult of never enough. Up to this point, Manisha, we've been talking about the internal factors that lead to joining the cult. Let's talk about some of the external ones now. So the internal ones, we were talking about the shame and the busy badge, et cetera. But there are lots of these external factors, too. And one of them you call counterfeit financial culture. What is that and how does it lead us to strive ourselves crazy in your own
2: words?
0: So I have observed that. With increasing rapidity, the images that we are exposed to in media these days frequently bear almost no resemblance to economic reality. And just before coming on to this podcast and, and you and I were chatting, I had flown cross country. So I happened to be watching mindless TV shows on TV for six hours. And I saw once and again that whether I was watching a police show or a legal drama or a medical drama, I would see portrayals. And let's just pick the show's suits. It's a legal drama theoretically set in New York. There's an executive assistant on the show named Donna. Any woman listening to this will know exactly what I'm talking about. Donna goes to work every morning and there's never any frizz in her hair, yet the show takes place in one of the most humid places to be in the summer. So that means she clearly had her hair professionally blow dried and blown out before going to work. Her clothes are exquisite. You can literally see the quality of the fabric dripping through the screen. It's clearly been tailored to her. Her nails are perfect. She Drinks $15 cosmopolitans, which now are probably $20 cosmopolitans in New York after work, lives at a beautiful place. And so I went and did the marathon this. And long story short, it turns out if you want to groom, live, and be like this character, Donna, you'd have to earn 25, 30% more than that position actually pays in reality. And so I started doing this for a wide range of characters on a wide range of shows. And i keep doing the reality check whenever I'm on a a place like this. And over and over again, I see the same thing, but I, I see the numbers getting bigger. Now I would actually argue it's. Somewhere between thirty and fifty percent more is what you'd have to earn to live like many of the characters we are exposed to in media. So you, so to me, it's this counterfeit financial culture. Like we're we're looking at something and it's completely fake, and we're trying to we we judge ourselves. Well, they have that, and I have. This, I work in the same field or industry or position, and I guess I should have that too. And next thing you know, you're in debt. Or, you you're not in debt, and you just feel like crap about yourself.
1: I mean, so it's clear, right? Advertising, social media influencers, basically, we're being pushed to buy things. But the way we're being pushed to buy things is by creating these kind of false self worth anchors. So, talk about those a little bit. Like, what are the false self worth anchors, and and why do we fall for them so easily?
0: The false self worth anchors are any physical external. Item that we use as armor, I tend to think of it. And we, to give an example, in my corporate days, women oftentimes in finance at the executive levels judge each other on handbags. It's ridiculous. And the kind of handbag you're carrying is like a peacock feather that signals to the other women in the room what your status or position is in the corporate hierarchy. And ironically, you know, you've made it all the way to the top when you can carry like a Coat from CVS drugstore, you know, like the plastic bag or something that when you when you've arrived, you don't have to carry any of the armor, so to speak, is the the peacock feather there. But it it's this notion of how we use possessions to signal to our fellow flock members where we stand in society, and because we don't as a society tend to praise people for their character wow you are so kind you are so generous you are so curious you are so thoughtful you are so creative we don't value those parts of ourselves as much as we do the reactions that people give us from our external shiny self-worth anchors
1: this counterfeit financial culture, it doesn't only sell us things, it kind of also sells us ways of being. I'm going to quote here from chapter four, not quote, but in chapter four of your book, Money's Zen, you reproduce a New York Times published daily to-do list of scandalized and now in prison CEO Elizabeth Holmes. And it basically is just what her morning looks like. Talk about that kind of destructive myth of hustle culture and struggle porn. Because I I remember as I was looking at this list, I was kind of getting anxious. I was like, I can't do that every morning. Like there's no way I can live up to what she had created in her schedule.
0: So I will say, thanks to my 10-year-old niece, I am a newly anointed Swifty. So having just discovered... Taylor Swift, 17 years after everybody else, and being a little bit intense by personality, I have been reading and listening to everything I possibly can, which as listeners will know right now is a lot about Taylor. So one of the things is how she's prepared for the heiress tour, which is she for six months would get on a treadmill and do the entire 44 song list set list on the treadmill. And she'd run and sing during the fast songs, and walk and sing during the slow songs to prepare. And so now, when I'm at the gym, I start comparing. Like I start feeling bad about myself that as I'm sitting on the treadmill, after you know that I that I can't do that. And you know, I'm I'm turning 54 this year. I'm I should be grateful that I can just get on the treadmill and and that I want to get on the treadmill. And so it's this this notion that we start comparing ourselves to people in all of these different ways. And I have literally started to feel, and I love Taylor Swift, so I, I mean this in a loving way, but I feel like crap about myself as I I look at all that she's accomplished at her young age, and then I feel bad that I haven't done it um, or I can't do it. And the, and so it's this notion that we compare ourselves to. People's routines, people's exercise routines, people's get ready for work routines, but also even vacations. Like there's vacation competition now. You know, where you go back to the office. Oh, how was your vacation? Where did you go? The ability to have easy access to credit can enable us to foul up on those kinds of experiential comparisons, just as in just as damaging of a financial manner as the Possession
1: comparisons. So I want to move in the last part of our talk here to solutions, because we've, I think, laid out the problem pretty well. And, and as the title of your book, The Solution is Money Zen. But let's break it down into some of the pieces and parts. And you you talked a little bit about this idea of doing versus being, but we're very much in this last portion talking a lot about doing right doing those things about the hustle culture here's another quote we should start with what we want to be act in accordance with the kind of human being you want to be at a soul level and this will lead you to do the kinds of things that support your core values and beliefs is doing more comfortable than being in medicine we used to kind of make the joke don't just do something stand there Right? This idea that we're highly uncomfortable with being, but doing feels natural. Is it the same situation here? Absolutely. And being can be, being
0: is actually one of the hardest things to do, ironically, and literally and figuratively. And I think what happens is in all the doing, we don't even know who we want to be. Anymore. As I started to try and put that concept into place, live as the person I want to be and do whatever then flowed from that, it felt so like I was in a three legged kids running race. Like I just felt so clumsy. And it's, I'm about a year now into trying to live this way. And I just, I feel like society doesn't make it easy for you to do that. You know, like just to give a quick example, I told you I was on a cross country flight. Well, the reason I was, was to pick up my nephew and take him to go see my parents. So he could spend some time with his grandparents. And that involved my uh, a bunch of antics because they're on the East Coast and I'm on, on the West Coast. And just as i'm traveling you know people sitting down next to me are asking so what do you what do you do and i'm thinking no like i'm trying to be a good daughter and be a good aunt and i want to focus on that and so i tried to you know flip the conversation to w- why i was traveling and so forth but invariably the question would slip back in and the person was so clearly trying to understand what did i do for a living so that they could put me in a box And I was trying as hard as I could not to talk about what I did for a living, just as an exercise. And I think what I want to emphasize is that it sounds so easy to just be, but doing is what almost every force outside of us is encouraging us to do in the modern world.
1: I feel like the being and doing dichotomy gets really to the heart of the money Zen philosophy, right? Because we're really talking about balancing financial health and emotional wealth, right? And so the being is the emotional wealth. And sometimes the doing when done correctly is the financial health. So I guess the big question, I think the the big question for us all to confront is how do we balance those two in some kind of healthy way?
0: The first step, I believe, is to understand that there are two components to having calm, confidence, and clarity around the role that money plays in your life and your relationship to it. For years, I only focused on the money problem piece, which is addressed by creating financial health for yourself. What was missing in my life when I woke up at age 50 after two near-death experiences and a divorce as a childless, single, middle-aged woman with no friends because I had alienated pretty much everybody in my life because I put work in front of them. What I I came to realize was that I was emotionally bankrupt. And we don't talk about the worry that most of us have in life is that we're not going to be seen or be valued or be heard or feel worthy of who we are. And the only way to solve that worry, concern, is by increasing your emotional wealth, which comes through connection and creativity and curiosity and all sorts of things that cost nothing but require time and presence.
1: I grew up in the financial independence, retire early community. It was how I kind of discovered that I could step away from being a doctor and start pursuing the things I really wanted to do in life. I realized quickly that the worries, concerns and concentration on money, however, didn't really serve me in the end because I found that I had enough money, but I didn't really know, didn't really know what enough looked like in the rest of my life. And it ended up being quite a struggle. Talk about the FIRE community in general you know, I got the feeling from the book, you know, part of you is like, they're getting it wrong. How, how's the fire community getting it wrong? So I first
0: read Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez's book, Your Money or Your Life, probably a couple months after it came out. And one of the greatest joys of my professional life was getting to meet Vicky When the second edition came out in 2018, she and I ended up serendipitously on several different channels uh, talking about money. And I, I got to develop a, a friendship with her. And it was through her eyes that I started to change my feelings about the FIRE movement. I have long lived my life to hit the crossover point, And I am all all for helping people retire early. But what Vicki pointed out to me was that she and Joe wrote the book so that people would live lightly on the planet and come to rely on each other and be more in community. The the book wasn't about racing to get to some end point. It was about having a completely different relationship with stuff and things and money. Therefore, you could get to this crossover point because you didn't need so much money because you weren't buying so many things and you had a very emotionally wealthy life through the experiences that you were generating with other wonderful humans that you had time for in your life. And so she made me really see how my fixation on hitting the number, getting to my number was. Contrary to the underlying emphasis of, of the concept, at least as she and Joe had envisioned it in the very beginning. And that really woke me up.
1: Well, Manisha, I really wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. As I think about our conversation, I realize that if you really want to avoid the cult of never enough, you have to realize that you are enough already. And I think by doing that, you can then focus on what you need to do to create a financial life to support who you want to be. And I think if you can accomplish that, and if you can get in touch with your own sense of enoughness it makes you uninteresting to that cult, that cult that is, has been foist upon us by society and social media, et cetera. I want to end this episode the way and every episode by asking you specifically, if people have more questions, how can they get in touch with you?
0: I like to keep things very simple. So my entire life professionally lives at moneyzen.com.
1: The book is Money Zen The Secret to Finding You Are Enough. Manisha, thank you so much for coming on today.
0: Jordan, thank you for the amazing questions.
1: That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this
2: show as well as other fine podcasts. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to circle back on our episode with Joe Salcihai and Ian Kiss. That was our Community Current Events episode where we talked about the difference in investing $1,000 in Bitcoin versus doing an S&P 500 index and what that would have looked like if we did that five years ago. Where would we be today? I got a bunch of emails about this episode, and there were two in particular I wanted to read to you Thank you again, first of all, for everyone who emailed me. We got a huge amount of feedback, and they brought up some really good points. Let's start with Chuck. He wrote, I'm a huge fan of the show, and first let me say thank you for your great work. I've really come to enjoy your podcast over the last few years. Your journey regarding both a demanding career and financial independence has really resonated with me and has made a lasting impact on how I look at work and life. I listened to your latest episode, the community episode with Joe Salcihai and Ian Kist, and found the discussion regarding Bitcoin to be lacking a bit of nuance that I think would be very helpful for the FIRE community. Let me offer a quick perspective. I think that Bitcoin as a small allocation of an investment portfolio can have a material impact on someone's journey to fire in a responsible and risk minimized way. Now that serious traditional financial institutions have launched Bitcoin ETFs, i.e., BlackRock and Fidelity, I think we owe it to the fire community to take a close look. There's a responsible case to be made for a small 5% allocation to Bitcoin that can save someone around two to four years on their journey to hit the fire number with little but admittedly not zero risk. And here's the example he gives. He said, someone saving $2,500 per month in a stock bond portfolio at a standard 7% return would reach a nest egg of $1 million in about 17 years. With a 5% Bitcoin allocation and using a conservative return, the person can hit the same goal in 13.5 to 14.5 years, giving back this person years of his or her life. Now the best part, because of Bitcoin's asymmetric risk profile and the small allocation, even if I turn out to be wrong and Bitcoin doesn't appreciate in value at all over that time, it would only take you an additional six months to hit your original $1 million target, 17.5 years instead of 17 years. You know, I think this is a really interesting argument. What we're really talking about here is asymmetric risk. It is true, if you bring in some volatility to your asset allocation, especially a small 5%, and you get outsized returns even on that small 5%, it can really speed up your savings, especially towards financial independence. On the other hand, the downside risk on such a small part of your portfolio allocation probably won't slow you down too much Even if you lose it all. So I didn't back up his calculations, but I'm assuming that he's actually right here. Investing in some volatility for a small amount of your portfolio may not necessarily be a bad move. But I want to contrast this to feedback I got from Bill, who also listened to that episode. He said, You and your guests. Joe Salcihai and Ian Kiss, missed the point when discussing what $1,000 of Bitcoin bought five years ago would be worth today. The answer is most likely $0. Most investors bought Bitcoin on an exchange from FTX or Gemini Trust or one of their counterparts, a huge list. All of those assets are tied up in bankruptcy proceedings and likely to be worth much less if they can be accessed at all. There's a famous Wall Street expression. Be worried about return of investment as return on investment. I'm disappointed you and your guests neglected to mention this. The infamous Mt. Gox hack was in 2014, so if someone bought Bitcoin on the exchange 10 years ago, they would also have $0. My guess is since then, others have lost their uninsured Bitcoin through other hacked exchanges and counterparties that might not have been as well publicized. I think Bill has a really good point here. We forget it's not just the investment, but because Bitcoin is such a new technology and because it was so unregulated, you may have lost your Bitcoin for other reasons that are not related to the actual value that Bitcoin has in the market today. Because a lot of these exchanges were hacked and there were a lot of legal problems. You might have Bitcoin, but you might not be able to access it. Thank you, Bill and Chuck, for giving your opinions, and I'm interested in what most of you all out there listening think of their arguments. Go ahead and go to our Facebook group. That's earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Again, earnandinvest.com slash Facebook, and tell us what you think. Do Chuck and Bill have it right? Did Joe and Ian have it right? What do you guys think? I'm excited to hear. You can also email me at docg at diversify.com. That's docg, D-O-C-G at D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com. Let me know what you think.
1: All right, I leave things running just for a few minutes to catch any after show. Like what we talk about, I usually tack it on to the end. Anything about the book you feel like we didn't cover? Kind of like a big, as you know, like a book like this, there's so much good stuff in there. There's no way I could cover everything. We're just literally skimming on some of the big topics. But anything like at the end of our conversation, you're like, I wish we talked about this. Well,
0: you are Hands down, one of the most prepared interviewers. Um, I have the honor of getting to chat with so you hit so many of the big questions. I feel like I didn't do as good a job giving crisp answers as I would have liked to this morning. Um, the As I think about it, really, the only thing I feel we didn't talk about would be some of the reactions that I've gotten from readers that have surprised me um i uh, had a gentleman who is in his early 70s i sit on a non-profit board with him he was exceptionally exceptionally successful in the in, in it's conventionally defined in the financial services industry very very senior level individual and he had been given a copy of my book Mm -hmm. and he said to me like normally i don't read stuff like this but i I, i'd been given to me and i was on a plane and so i just started reading it and he's like oh my god i couldn't put it down and he was like i and he i mean he just started emoting about his marriage and his relationship with his kids and it was so clear to me that he had just had an aha moment of, oh my God, my entire life has been driven by this multi-trauma that I never dealt with. I've had other people, uh, particularly women, reach out to me about the peacock feathers and the social armor and the realization of how much energy they're putting into playing that game and the negative return for getting out of it financially, figuratively and financially, literally. And so those have been some of the, the and the other thing that I think that has really struck me is also the people who haven't, I, uh, the, that have not enjoyed the book and meeting people who are like, that is a sick way to live. Like, How did you ever like start off that? Like literally (laughs) could not fathom that set of values. And so that was also really fascinating to me. So I I think that's probably the people who identified that I didn't expect to. And then the individuals who totally didn't identify.
1: Yeah. I have to admit, Minish, I was reading some of the book and I kept on saying to myself, no, no, don't do that. Like (laughs) you were talking about getting sick and then going back. I mean, you know, the we didn't talk a lot about the concept of addiction. Um, but it really is an addiction that I think a lot of us carry, this need to try to fill ourselves. I, like, you know, on another another episode, in fact, I recently did an episode with Vicky Robin and mm-hmm. I referred to I referred to this idea that at one point in my life I realized I had these holes deep down inside, and I kept on thinking I fill those holes by stuffing more money in them. And it just, it never worked, right? It never filled the hole, no matter how hard I tried, no matter how much real estate I owned, no matter how many investments I had, um, the hole was still there. And yeah, this idea of addiction, it's, it's kind of, it's a hard word, but I think it, it fits for a lot of us and where we struggle with kind of the, what I, what I think you might have used this term, but I, I use it a lot. The achievement treadmill, like we're, we, we're just on this treadmill of trying to, to fill ourselves up with things that aren't working.
0: I, it is totally an addiction. And I had not realized it until I started writing this, that it is, it is as gripping as alcoholism, nicotine, any type of addiction. Um, this is It clearly meets all the, the hallmark signs. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China.